0: To to Microdegressions, a philosophy podcast. This is Spencer Case, and I am here today with the always interesting and provocative Stephen Kirshner. Steve, how are you doing?
1: Doing well. Glad to be on here, and I uh, very much appreciate the invitation. So it's real it's a real pleasure to be on with you, Spencer.
0: Well, we thought we would talk today about philosophy of law uh, leading into some issues related to the Students for Fair Admissions case against Harvard and UNC. But before we get to that, I want to just ask some general questions about philosophy of law. This is an area of philosophy that Steve knows a lot more about than I do. So I guess I'll begin with this. One of the few philosophy of law things I've I've read was when I was when I did the the Publius Fellow thing for the Claremont Institute, 2015, the last year before they got taken over by the the MAGA heads, they were Still sort of Straussians, one of the readings we had for that group was from Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr, and he had this view, I guess it's called legal positivism, according to which what what lawyers are doing when they make arguments is they're just trying to predict what the judge is going to say, so it's this this really deflationary. Notion of what the law is. I, I I read that and I thought, huh, really? That seems like a very, I don't know, disappointing view of the law. What do you, What do you think of that?
1: So uh, regarding Oliver Wendell Holmes' legal realism, i, I really have a few mind, uh, two minds of this. I mean, so his view is the the, the law is whatever the, the courts uh, a prediction of what the courts will decide. I mean, one serious problem with this is that it makes it very unclear. Um what a, what it is when a law when a judge tries to interpret the law if the law is a prediction of what the the court will decide, then how do you actually um what is interpretation is it an attempt to predict what the what the prediction will be um there's no real account of relevance I mean whatever affects the judge's decision seems to be legally relevant that doesn't seem to be the correct answer um and uh so it so i mean they're just it just um the, the deep skepticism of legal realism is is fairly troubling. One way to see it as more plausible is that the other theories are really problematic. I mean, if you look at the legal positivist theories, the two most famous being John Austin's view that the law is a command of a sovereign, and H.L.A. Hart's view, that it's a it's a series of rules, it's a, it's a collection of rules which have a certain hierarchical relation. Those seem to be really unsatisfactory. One, there's all sorts of problems with, with Austin's view. The most obvious being that it makes uh, it doesn't allow rules to persist from one sovereign to another. And also, um, what a sovereign is, is, seems to be circular, because a sovereign is someone who seems, be, who seems to be identified by the legal rules, and the legal rules are identified by the sovereign. Um, Hart's system doesn't fare that much better. Um, it is a better and, and more sophisticated system. Um, but it seems to rely on the notion of a rule of recognition, which then identifies all the other valid rules of the system. But you have the standard problems of foundationalism. Is the is the rule of recognition itself a rule? Well, so it needs to be validated. And if it's not a rule, how can it validate the other rules of the system? So there's a real problem with, with positivism, in addition to the fact that it doesn't seem to account for the way in which we engage in legal reasoning. If we instead say, OK, we should include principles as well as rules as constituting the law, there's real problems with you know, how are these principles identified and how can you know, democratic accountability allow for them. So as completely frustrating and unsatisfactory as Oliver and Holmes' system is, the question is, is it better than the competitors? And, and I think that's a, that there's a real question whether it is.
0: Yeah, I'm just stuck on this idea like, okay, here I am. I'm the judge, and I'm listening to the arguments. And What I'm trying to do is predict what I will say when
1: deciding the case. Yeah, I mean you might think that um, a better account of legal realism is Jerome Frank's claim that the law is a specific decision about a particular situation. Um, But if that's true, that means that where the court hasn't decided something, there's simply no answers to what the law says. And I think a better interpretation of both Holmes and Frank is just to say that there is no law. I mean, we have things that we treat as if they're law, but there really is no law. Similar to the way in which an error theorist might treat morality, you might think that the legal realists treat uh, law. They say, well, uh, you know, if, if there were law, here's what it would look like, or you know, we'll act as if there is law. But at, in some in some deep sense, there is no law. The legal propositions just, um, they don't refer to anything. Good news
0: for the anarchists.
1: <laughs> that's sad but true. I, I, I guess that's right. I mean, I, one way to be an anarchist certainly is, is not just to say that there—that the law is unjustified, but to say that there is no law. I, I mean, so that from the perspective of someone who practices law or from the perspective of a judge, it's got to look something like what um, Frank or Holmes is saying because you think oh, are the results are really dictated to you by the language of the statute, um, the facts of the case, or some combination of those? And at least in hard cases, you know the plain meaning of the rule doesn't decide the case. The answer seems to be no. You seem to have an enormous amount of discretion. You, you know a, a real clear case of this is the affirmative action line of cases, particularly um, you know things like Bakke and Grutter, Gratz, and most recently the Harvard and UNC cases. Because you might think, look, the, the, just the, the considerations cut in all sorts of directions. The, 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 there doesn't seem to be any decisive argument. Even if one were to think, which I do, that affirmative action is unjustified on consequential grounds, you, you might think the law here is just a mess. I mean, it's unclear what we should be looking at, and it's unclear the conclusion to which it leads. So I started to read
0: this article at the dispatch that sounded like it was going to be a really interesting article, but I don't have a paid subscription. So I only read the first paragraph and a half or something like that. It it uh was a on on free speech and cancel culture. And I think it was called free speech as a a balancing test or something. And I think this is what he was going to say is like, uh yeah, the pro Hamas student sets. Harvard deserve cancellation or whatever. They deserve accountability for their words. And here there's just a balancing test. But he he begins by saying lawyers hate the words balancing test because it means there's no bright line. And it means you have to rely on a judgment call, which although there might be better and worse judgments, is going to seem subjective because somebody else could you know, with equal consistency say, well, I've, I've resolved the balancing test and I've added up it it, to put it in David Enoch's terms. I've added up the plausibility points differently and it's hard to see what there is to be said against it. so it sounds like you're sort of saying that, right? Like, like there are just so many cases where these balancing tests, we could just say, well, I think it's this consideration outweighing this consideration.
1: So there's also, I mean, so take the First Amendment. It's a great example. So we have certain exceptions built into the First Amendment. For example, we say that the First Amendment doesn't protect speech, which involves clear and present danger. It doesn't protect uh, defamatory speech. It doesn't protect fraud, and it doesn't protect obscenity. And you might think, okay, well, where do those exceptions come from? It's not clear the legislature intended them, and it's not in the text itself, right? It's not part of the plain meaning of the text. It's unclear if this was part of originalism, that is, it's unclear if it was the original understanding of the text or if it was the original intent of the text. So how is it that you get to carve out these exceptions to freedom of speech based on something that that it doesn't seem to satisfy the plain meaning test or satisfy the two originalism tests? So... Yeah, I mean, there's a real problem there. And if you use a balancing test, it's even worse because balancing seems to be the prerogative of the legislature, not the judiciary. Not only is the it doesn't seem to be part of the judiciary's job, but second, it looks a lot more like lawmaking than law interpreting. So yeah, I mean, I think there's a real problem with balancing tests. On the other hand, we tend to think, look, I mean, these laws are not absolute. I mean, one of the reasons of having strict scrutiny is to say, um, yeah, there's certain... Considerations which are just so overwhelming that basic morality is going to require that we allow this to happen, but but the question is: Are we creating new law? Are we interpreting the law? It seems very much like we're um, creating law, and again, that's not the, that's not the judiciary's role. So, yeah, I mean, even the sort of considerations that the judiciary has to consider. I mean, should it consider? I mean, just just for a few examples, you know, should it consider ordinary language? should it consider precedent. So all courts consider precedent. They give it serious weight. But it's a little bit hard to see why. I mean, precedent is not set by the legislature. It's set by previous courts. Previous courts, again, are not lawmakers. When we look at things like original intent, original intent is something that courts look at quite a bit and, and put a lot of weight on it. But it's it's unclear why original intent should have any importance. I mean, after all, individuals have intention, you know, Spencer has an intention, Steve has an intention because uh, we have minds, but legislative bodies don't have intention, right? They're, they're collections of individuals. They don't actually have an intention. Second, it's unclear how we would aggregate intention votes. I mean, who counts? Who, only people who voted for a bill or the people who voted against it? Or the people who voted against it uh, voted for it and read the bill, you know, regardless of whether they read the bill. And even if we should look at the, um, the intention of the particular people who ratified something, there, there's a question of what, at what level? Do we look at the example they had in mind, the definition they had in mind, or the goal they had in mind? It seems we have to determine the level at which intention operates. What happens if the people who ratified the bill had a second order intention that you not consider their first order intention? That is that you look at the plain meaning, right? They, their intention with regard to the bill, for example, let's say the 1964 Civil Rights Act you know, Title VI, which bans discrimination. Maybe might be like, look, they, well, their intention was that you looked at plain meaning. And then fourth, and a very serious consideration, is what does this do to the fair notice and legislative accountability? I mean, the average citizen doesn't have the time or even the means by which to figure out what some legislator thought to sort of pour through the legislative record and look at their speeches and, and try and use other historical mechanisms to determine what the person um, intended. So, I mean, there's all sorts of reasons to be theoretically extraordinarily skeptical of original intent, but if we don't do that, it's, not clear, it's unclear what concept we're talking about. It could be that, we're ta- that there are um, different concepts out there, and the concept that's expressed by the word or the phrase in question seems to be identifiable only if we look at the speaker's intent. So it just seems that it's really unsatisfactory. Our options are terrible here. Either we can't, you know, get past issues of ambiguity and in some cases vagueness without looking at original intent, or we have to use these fictions of intention votes or a collection of people having a single intention, which is simply not true. Yeah, so
0: I guess my sense here, I don't have a a deep understanding of of the debate here, but I lean toward something like an original intent view, I suppose, because the thought is that it places some constraints on the Supreme Court. Like I don't want them just generating whatever they want based out of the text that's in front of them. Uh, It it would seem to give the courts too much power. And so I think, I think that something like original intent, something like that kind of interpretation, or would, uh, I don't know, it has a usefulness to it, even if it's philosophically unsatisfactory.
1: But note, and I'm highly sympathetic to your your concern here, but if your concern is about usefulness, then isn't the case that if you were a judge, in a judge case or justice case, wouldn't you then be pushing a policy preference of yours, right, which is just to limit the role of, judici- of the judiciary? Wouldn't that be exactly the sort of thing that the legislature should do? Shouldn't policy considerations be done by the legislature rather than the court? So in some sense, you're citing a policy consideration to support your theory of interpretation. But is I, I wonder if that's, so, if that's contradictory. It's contradictory because you're Preferred method of judicial interpretation is to not consider policy, but justifying the, the the refusal to consider policy is itself a policy. Well, I mean, I guess this comes down
0: to how you feel about second-order normative reasoning, right? I know you, you don't like this, but some philosophers think you have, you have you can justify a set of rules by appeal to utility, but then after that, you justify actions by. Appealing to the fundamental rules or something like that, you have some sort of two-tiered system built into the institutions.
1: So, two two concerns here. One is um, this might be a view of of rule consequentialism, and I think we should be really skeptical of rule consequentialism for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, One of which is it just seems to be irrational—the standard kind of JJC smart rule to put a a rule between you and what you know would be the right answer. But there are other considerations as well. I mean, what do you have? Competing rules which have equally good utility. Is it the case that an act that is permitted by one rule and not another is both right and wrong, or is neither? It seems to be logically impossible. To so take, the, take the kind of view that you see um, in John Rawls regarding punishment, that the system of punishment is justified by utilitarianism, but within the system we should have retributivist rules. But you might wonder, how can that make sense? I mean, at a fundamental level, how can a forward-looking system Justify backward looking rules. Um, I mean, you could see that could be a good heuristic or a good rule of thumb, but it's hard to see how it could really justify them. And, and the same thing would if we went the other way. Imagine that we thought that retributism justifies the system of punishment, but within it we should make utilitarian considerations. Again, how can backwards and rights or desert based justifications of punishment justify judges making utilitarian just, uh, judgments? Um, regarding things like uh, probation
0: or parole. I don't think I agree with you about this. Let's consider an award situation where you're supposed to, that there's some a purpose that's forward-looking for instituting an award for students. Like, I don't know, maybe it's, it's one of these uh, student science things. What are they? Uh, science fairs. Yeah. So there's a, a set of, of awards set up and the purpose of Setting up the awards is to, you know, encourage science education and, you know, forward-looking goals of various sorts. And then you as a judge said, okay, so this has been established and, you know, we think that, you know, this is going to be best promoted if you look for these qualities, which we award the most meritorious student for what they have done in their project And so you're supposed to consider these things like innovativeness and impact and various other things. And your job as the judge is then just to see which student, you know, satisfies those criteria. And it would be a a violation of, of your integrity in that capacity to say, okay, well, this one, I guess, is more meritorious by the criteria, but... I can think of some other reason why it might be forward-looking for me to, you know, give it to some other student. It's just like, wouldn't be your role at that point. I don't see anything paradoxical about that.
1: So a a couple of things here. One, we want to separate out um, what is a good heuristic, that is a good rule of thumb, as opposed to what's actually correct. So let's consider a case where you're judging the science fair and for whatever reason, you know that A is more meritorious. That is, A satisfies the criterion better than B, but B will will produce a lot more um, utility or or, or much overall better consequences. For example, A is not going to go to college at all, so giving A the award accomplishes nothing. He doesn't care about it, whereas not only does B care a lot, but B is going out to college. It could really be useful. Um, you know, B is excellent. So what would justify you sticking to the rule? It could be that you validly consented uh, to follow the rules but then that that's not going to be a, a rule utilitarian approach right that's valid consent well okay so but that but that's not the sort of thing we're talking about here it could be that utility in general occurs when judges of science contests give the word to the most meritorious but why should what you do in this situation be justified by other judges in other situations that have no causal effect on you and you have no causal effect on them? I mean, it's really mysterious as to why the relation between you and applicant A and B should be permitted or justified by person D who has no causal contact with you guys. Third, it could be that you think, look, they're just role relative obligations. In virtue of occupying a role, you should do certain things. But role-relative obligations are really mysterious. I mean, how is it that you get an obligation to decide, sign, can, contest in a certain way um, simply by occupying a role? Unless it's because you vow the consented to it, or unless because fairness dictates it, or unless it's because of utility. So, if you don't have a role-relative obligation, it's a little hard to see what your reasoning is. So I'm not sure why we should accept this. And I think you can see this when you move away from judges of science, con- of science contests or judges in the law and look at things like soldiers. I mean, imagine you've been ordered to, not, not you in particular, but you know, Jones has been ordered to kill someone. And he has to say, well, look, I mean, should I do this? Should I follow the order of my, my commanding officer in virtue of my role? Is it because I validly consented to, to do so? Or is it because uh, utility requires it? There, it's a little less obvious that's kind of the role relative obligation is going to explain it. Um, but if we move towards either utility or valid consent, then it doesn't look very much like a rule consequential system. So I'm wondering why you think we should have different rules, if if we should, for soldiers and for judges. I am somewhat
0: skeptical that role relative obligations for soldiers go as far as their traditionally believed to go, you know? So, but that is because being a soldier involves taking human life. So I think we paper over a lot of that with this like moral equality of combatant stuff. You know, I have skepticism of that. I don't have a general skepticism of role relative obligations. I just think that this is utterly routine. I grade all the time. My students you know, papers and stuff. Without putting myself in the thought of, of, like, well, it would promote the greatest good if this student graduated, or I think this student has better moral character, or whatever. I just think that we have to be we have to be somewhat constrained and and recognize it. Just as the, you know, the economy requires there to be specialization. I I just think institutions require this requires to have sort of limited roles and you
1: know. but but look i mean but what would justify i mean is, is the role sort of a basic justification or does it depend on the fact that you consented to do certain things or does it depend on the fact that the role achieves certain good results because if it's if it's either you've consented you vowed consented to do so or that it has efficient results then you don't believe in a role of wealth of obligations a, a role is nothing more than a heuristic so, I, I mean, my, my question to you is, do you really think that roles are basic justifications or do you think they're non-basic justifications, in which case, why, why, lead, you know, ignore the intermediary justification and go right to uh, valid consent and right to efficiency? And even in terms of the role that you you played, I mean, when you agree to be the judge of a science fair, do you think actually someone actually told you or you signed something that like you said you, you picked the me- most meritorious person? You might think, look, so that's the conventional understanding. Um, But, you know, you might wonder, is it really the conventional understanding? I mean, you might think that a lot of people handing out awards really see themselves as all, take into account all sorts of considerations. How hard did the applicant work? How important is the person's discovery independent of the caliber of the discovery itself? I guess my question is, do you think that the role obligation is basic or do you think that it depends on... Something like valid consent, efficiency, or perhaps desert or fairness. I don't
0: have a whole theory of this worked out. I'm not sure exactly what to say, but I do think that very often we have actions that only really seem rational when you have faith in some kind of process that others are, are uh, coordinating their actions in a certain way. And I, I guess that's what I'm what I'm doing.
1: I mean, notice that there there are real issues here. So you might think, and you see this with regard to Supreme Court and nominees for the Supreme Court. Do you think a Supreme Court nominee, um, part of um, his or her job is to consider justice? And you might think, look, even if there is a a role obligation, we still want to know what that role obligation is and what shapes it. And here we don't even have an agreement. I mean, some people think, look, the job of of, of a Supreme Court justice to call balls and strikes. It's not to promote justice. That's just not part of the job description. And other people think, absolutely, you have to do this, in part because you're determining the best conception of a concept, or just because that's what we want Supreme Court justices to do, that even though we have a distinction between making law and interpreting law, really what they do is in the gray zone between the two. And I think this is true in plenty of cases. Is it the case that a soldier's job is just to follow the commanding officer, or is it also to follow the commanding officer and follow the rules of of uh, warfare? Or is it a uh, three part to follow the ru- the, the commands of a, uh, the, the orders of commanding officer, follow the laws of, of, of warfare, and also do what's just? So I think part of the problem here is when we introduce the notion of a role relative obligation, there are just real theoretical issues as to what the role is. And I think the difficult part is if there were a role obligation, what would tell us what that role is? Is it just convention, the best conception of that role? So we use justice to determine what the role is, or is it some sort of combination of those? So I think there's a real problem in determining what the role is, even if we think there is a role relative obligation. Yeah. So let's talk about
0: the role of the Supreme Court. What is the Supreme Court supposed to do? It's supposed to be higher than the lower courts, but what is it supposed to do relative to the other branches of government? Now, the conventional answer is that the legislature makes the law, the Supreme Court interprets the law, and the executive branch enforces the law. That's sort of the, I don't know, third-grade civics version of it, although, in fact, every branch has to interpret its own role in a certain way. And there's also a real question about whether you can distinguish interpretation From legislation. I can imagine a dictator telling the legislature, oh, yeah, you can pass whatever laws you want. My role is just to say what it means. That's like Stalin saying, yeah, we'll have a vote. I'll just be the one to count it, right?
1: I I think that's a really good point. We have a job that Supreme Court justice does, right, which is to interpret the law. And we think, look, there's a distinction between interpreting law and making the law. But, I mean, underlying that description are two issues. Number one, what is the law, right? Does the law include morality or not, for example, or even is there law or the legal realist right? There's no such thing as law. But second, how should you reason? For example, should you consider efficiency or what weight should you put on precedent? One thing that's fairly troubling about what justices do as a theoretical matter is even if you were to agree uh, with a range of considerations they should take into account. For example, they should take into account plain meaning, original understanding, original intent, precedent, you know, structural features, how the law relates to other parts of the, the same law or other laws. You might wonder, well, what's the weighting function? How should the justice go about weighting these things? It's very unclear to decide what the waiting function should be. It's even harder to see how we should decide what the waiting function should be without using either morality or justice. But if we have a weighting function, and if it depends on morality or justice, we're edging very closer to making law and far away from interpreting it. And in addition, we have certain mysteries. Why should the Supreme Court be bound by what uh, the Supreme Court has decided in previous cases? After all, that wasn't a legislature. They weren't authorized to create law. I mean, people say things like Ronald Dworkin says, well, we want to have the law have integrity, right? Should have coherence over time. But you might think, well, why is coherence over time more important than getting the correct interpretation? or doing what's just. But in any case, I think there are real problems, both in terms of what considerations a justice should consider, for example, original original intent, um, and second, how much to weight those considerations. And without a value-free mechanism of identifying these features, we edge perilously close to making law rather than interpreting it. If you're a Supreme Court justice,
0: you should be guided by some principles of justice, but I guess you you would also be constrained by the text of what you're supposed to interpret in a certain way. You could go for the interpretation of the law that is that is most just. In answer to the question about precedent, I guess you could also say order is a value. Maybe it isn't justice, but order, just stability of the system, has at least significant instrumental value. So, You've got these various things to weigh. How to weigh them, I I don't know. I, I suppose the thing to say is that there might be a number of different uh, ways judges might weigh them, but they should have co- integrity with themselves. They shouldn't uh, choose to weigh different things differently based on a preferred result or something like that for partisan reasons it's to say, I'm going to defer to precedent in this case, not this case or something. The thing that it I think both of us, right? like the the whole emanations and prenumbra thing in Griswold is just like, where did this come from? What is this?
1: So I think you make an excellent point, but even the notion of order, again, I mean I, I gather I hear what you're saying that you know waiting is is going to be an issue for lots of things. There's nothing you know, perhaps there's nothing distinct with regard to law here. But here we have a real issue of um, to what degree should we look at? order. For example, imagine that you were a justice and you thought that due process, that there's no substantive due process, it's just procedural. And so the whole line of substantive due process protection is just flat out mistaken. Or perhaps you thought that the Commerce Clause, right, restricting federal power to controlling interstate commerce, is really limited and that that the Supreme Court precedent has been horrendous, violating the plain meaning of, of the Commerce Clause, the original understanding and the original intent. And you think, on the other hand, you know, we have a long period of time in which the Supreme Court has given this this very permissive interpretation of the Commerce Clause. And you say, okay, well, look, order is important here. Okay. And so we say, okay, order is important here, but so is getting the correct interpretation. And you think, okay, we need to decide how to balance these. Now, one issue is, well, how do we balance them? Not not just in in the particular case of the Commerce Clause, but even in theory. But second, how does that intersect with the role? I mean, if your role is to get the correct interpretation, why should you look at order at all? Why shouldn't you say, look, the the Depression-era judges just got it dead wrong. We we owe, owe them no duty to follow what they're doing. I mean, by analogy, imagine that uh, you and your wife adopt a child and the previous parents have these rules, but you say they're terrible rules, uh, really bad for the child and unjust on top of them. Well, why wouldn't you say, look, you know, there, there's a new sheriff in town. There are new rules. I, I'm not going to be order schmorder. I mean, what matters here is that, you know, my my a child grow up happy and healthy and I just don't care about those those past decisions. And you think, okay, well, you know, coherence is important. We want to have an integrity in terms of the narrative, or we want to have order, we want to have predictability. Okay, but why aren't those just features of what's right or good rather than a separate value? And if we're trying to figure out what's right or good, why not just go directly to that rather than treating order or integrity or coherence as a separate value? So I think that when it comes to weighing those things, you do have
0: to have some eye to what the just outcome would be right um,
1: but sorry why isn't though order and coherence just part of the just outcome rather than a competitor to the just outcome
0: I mean a just outcome for society maybe not in a particular the particular case where you're deferring to precedent Right, there might be a really good argument from justice that a particular line of precedent was flawed but it's been there for a hundred years and the whole system would be thrown in chaos if people didn't know what to expect every new Supreme court is going to reinvent the wheel every, every however many years. Yeah. If you just aimed directly for justice every time, it would not be, would not be
1: well, I So my question is just a, a, a more limited question. Why isn't order or predictability or things like that? Why aren't those just part of justice rather than competitor to justice? Why don't we say, look, we want to figure out what justice requires um, sort of order, accountability, stability, are just part of uh, justice-based considerations. So, I mean, here would be an example that would come into play. Imagine that someone were a pro-life justice, and he were to think that abortion is the slaughter of innocent children. Well, you might think, why should we pay any attention uh, to order and stability when it's competing against such a massive injustice? Whereas on the other hand, you might think discrimination against Asians or whites in the admissions to elite state universities. Sure, that's an injustice, but there's a lot of reliance on the previous rules. And it's not the same sort of injustice as the pro would claim slaughtering innocents. So their order of stability should have a lot more importance.
0: I can make sense of that. The reason I want to say it's not the same value is it just seems that we can think of cases where they're in conflict. But how that conflict should be adjudicated depends on how serious the disorder and how serious the injustice of the particular precedent.
1: So well, let me ask you a particular case. Imagine that we found, and I, I don't know this to be true or false, but imagine that we found the following: the people who wrote the Constitution did not think that due process was substantive, and even if they had thought it substantive they would not have thought that it protects the gay lifestyle. Now, if you were a judge, would you say, well, look, we're already, you know, a century into substantive due process or something like that. And clearly for protecting fundamental freedom, that includes the right to engage in the loving relationships of your choice. And that includes certain types of sexuality. So if you're deciding, look, order and stability is important, but so is getting it right. I mean, do you do some sort of Balancing tests, We say, well, look, this is really a fundamental liberty, and sort of order and stability are just going to have to give way. Or do you say, look, what does justice require, and then try and say, well, look, order and stability are part of a just society because people have to predict the laws. And if that's the case, then haven't you put a view that seems to be in sharp conflict with your earlier view of judicial restraint? That is, if judges have to look at justice, not to decide whether or not precedent is applicable, but also it's weight. And haven't you moved far away from the judicial restraint model and move very much towards a judge who considers justice exactly the opposite of the sort of judicial restraint model um, that you and I both have sympathy toward. So if the judge is deciding,
0: and I actually have thought about this, I guess I'm inclined to think like, I did not find that like the legal arguments for the Obergefell decision. I did not find that amazingly persuasive, but I also wouldn't want the Supreme Court to overturn it at this point. It's been about a decade of it being the constitutionally enshrined right for gay people to get married and to overturn it. I think there is such a thing as reliance interests. Okay. So does that mean that I'm saying there are no Institutional rules, or or there's no role-based obligations for the Supreme Court. No, I think their role-based obligations include making their best judgment about things like reliance interests and precedent. It's just a, I'm imagining a broader sort of role where they have to weigh these sorts of things.
1: Fair enough, and and I'm highly sympathetic to your approach, but but I do note that once you allow in substantive due process, if it really wasn't there originally, um, we move ever closer to emanations and penumbras. Right. I mean, that's how you get to substantive due process by looking at things like, OK, what's tied in with what we think are the basic rights. So let me just give you a, a couple examples of things that you might think are basic rights, but the court does not think is basic rights. Consider the freedom to contract. You might think that's a fundamental right. It certainly was something that that John Locke thought was a fundamental right. And it's something that the founders probably thought was a fundamental right. But if we have a a fundamental right to contract, it's a little clear how we get things like OSHA requirements, right, health and safety requirements in the workplace, or minimum wage laws, or even laws against sexual harassment. So, my my concern here is that once we allow law to be created and we move away from the founders' vision of what they think are the fundamental rights that trigger some sort of due process, looks like we've moved very much towards not only an activist judge, and not only a judge which shows very little restraint, but a judge which is creating law whole cloth. And my concern is, based on sort of your reasoning, if you really don't think um, that there's substantive due process, or if there is substantive due process, it does not include the right to gay marriage, then I'm, I'm wondering... Um, what's left of judicial restraint, other than of you know a basic fight between the right and the left as to whose values should could should control? Right, we're no longer in interpretation business. We're just fighting over whose values win out.
0: Well, if you ever get me to say that everyone has the right to his own concept of existence, just shoot me. Just end it.
1: <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> and assigning my view to that of, of Anthony Kennedy or a Sandra Day O'Connor is just it's just pure cruelty.
0: So. How do you want to describe this case? Do we have to talk about all of the precedents that were relevant to this case? Because I, there's such a muddle that it just seems like it would be a drag to talk about them all.
1: I think you're absolutely right. I think we can get by without talking about the precedent. The precedent really starts with Bakke in 1978, which is not that much of a precedent. But in addition... Uh, you might think that the court's reasoning is very, is very much inconsistent with its precedent. I mean, its reasoning consistently required strict scrutiny, and yet it kept on authorizing these programs, which pretty clearly t- um, did not pass strict scrutiny. So you might think that the precedent is a mess, even if we did want to go through it. But no, I think we can go directly to the case. We should ask ourselves do we think that the 1964 Civil Rights Act, you know, Title VI, or the Equal Protection Clause, and I, I think they're different tests. Um, permit this sort of uh, discrimination on the basis of of race or ethnicity? And I think the answer is no. Why not? Well, I mean, if in fact these things trigger strict scrutiny, it's a little hard to see what is the compelling interest, right? It's not clear that they have overall good results. So consider medicine. You're replacing people who, as best we can determine, um, would be better doctors than people who would be worse doctors. Now, sometimes people think they're externalities, although I don't think the evidence is there that these positive externalities, they're net positive externalities, or that they override the loss in performance by physicians. Um, Or you might think that's a backward-based consideration, right, which is what Justice Jackson seemed to to want to say. Now, look, we have to equalize the playing field, and the only way to do that is to cancel out past injustice, and the only way to cancel out past injustice is to engage in discrimination against Asians and, and whites. I don't find either argument convincing. And if I don't find either argument convincing, it's a little hard to see how they're going to satisfy strict scrutiny. But this relates to our previous consideration because note what we're doing. We're engaging in a moral consideration of whether or not these things have overall good results. I would argue they don't. Um, but that is a very much a forward-looking uh, you know, utilitarian or efficiency-based consideration. Or we're looking at the backward consideration. Does this, in fact, make up or or compensate for past injustice or at least equalize equal opportunity? I think the answer is is no. But again, these are exactly the sort of philosophical arguments that seem to be very different from just calling balls or strikes. They involve our thinking about these issues as philosophers and not as lawyers or judges. And I find this theoretically troubling, even if I don't see any way around it In terms of how the court should approach the issue
0: yeah so when it comes to strict scrutiny which is something that the court itself put in place applying that to a particular program to see whether it is is violated or whether it meets strict scrutiny that has to involve reasoning that goes beyond legal interpretation is that that's your basic point
1: Yes, that's my point. So we have to decide whether it's a compelling state interest and whether the legislation is a necessary means to that interest. I don't see how you can do this without engaging in philosophical reasoning. But note, even the strict scrutiny framework, right? That's not in the language of the Constitution. It's not clear that it's part of the original understanding of the Constitution or the original intent. So where do we get this framework? Well, you might think the judges um, imposed it in order to, um, you know, have kind of a middle ground, whereby really, uh, you know, legislation which infringed on fundamental liberties. Fundamental rights gets uh, you know a much closer look than legislation which did not look at fundamental rights. But one, we have to decide what those fundamental rights are, and to what degree they're infringing them, and also whether they're infringing them for a good reason. So, I mean, one question w- would be to ask is what I- what is the fundamental right that's being infringed on? So, imagine you have an Asian American applicant, and let's just say this Asian American applicant has you know, an SAT score that's three hundred points higher than. His competitor, right? He's a firm action competitor. Let's say an African American or Hispanic American competitor. And the GPA difference is comparable. And you might say, okay, well, look, this infringes a fundamental right of his. W- well, what's the fundamental right? I mean, it doesn't seem that he has a right not to have race considered. That seems to be arbitrary. Why, why race and not ethnicity? Why race and not gender? It can't be the right not to have arbitrary considerations taken into effect. I mean, after all, you can imagine uh, an emission system says, look, we have limited resources. We're just going to use a lottery system, or at least a lottery system for people who are in the top 5% of the high school class. Uh, This may or may not be a good idea, but it doesn't seem to be a right infringement. Third, it might be the right to have meritorious considerations followed but it's unclear why that would be. I mean, if California decided tomorrow that all our, all their universities are going to be open admissions, uh, that doesn't seem to be a right infringement. Why should it have to consider merit? The more fundamental reason is you might think that whoever owns something has a right to decide how it should be used. Whoever owns an institution like a university should decide who to admit and whom not to admit. So it's a little hard to see what the right infringement is. But without a fundamental right infringement on behalf of, let's say, the Asian American applicant, it's a little hard to see why we should kick into strict scrutiny or why these affirmative action programs would, would fail it. Now, someone might think, look, they, they contradict the plain meaning of Title VI. Okay, I mean, but, but then that's, that's a plain meaning argument. That's not, you know, that's not an equal protection clause argument. And second, that avoids the strict scrutiny framework that's required for the equal protection clause argument. In addition, there's a real issue whether the plaintiffs raised the the 1964 civil rights, the the Title VI argument, or if they gave it any real emphasis. So it's unclear if the court should really be even considering the Title VI argument if that's not the grounds on which the plaintiffs argued it. So I think this case is um, incredibly interesting. Um, I do think the moral arguments support the movement against affirmative action, But there's an interesting question, how those moral arguments intersect with the law. Do you think that the judges should be considering whether or not affirmative action in medical school achieves the best results? That is, should they be in the business of deciding whether or not the state of California would be better off with people who, um, let's say you had one group that was, I'm just making these numbers up, but let's say one group, 12% flunked the medical boards and another group, over 40% flunked the medical boards. Should they really consider whether or not there's reasons to take the group that flunks at more than 40% because there are externalities, or is this exactly the sort of policy-based considerations that judges are ill-equipped to do, and in any case, it's not part of the job description? I don't know. If it was the
0: first time they were ever considering it, I might say, yeah, leave it up to the legislatures, but now they have their own mess to unmake.
1: And boy, have they made a mess. Yeah, I I agree with you. That's a really good point. but I think this relates to our earlier conversation. I think there's just no way around it, right? I mean, I think the answer is yes, they have to consider it. Um, when you have a, a test which says that you have to have a compelling state interest and a necessary means to accomplish it, we need to know number one, what is the compelling state interest? And two, is this a means by which you accomplish it at all? There's there's an odd feature here, just using the medical school example, which is in general, people seem to be far less sympathetic, uh, at least in just ordinary conversation, to affirmative action in medical school than they do. With regard to law students, or with regard to philosophy graduate programs, and there's an interesting question as to why. Why does affirmative action in medical school seem to be more problematic than these other areas? A standard account is, well, there's just more on the line. There's people's lives on the line. There's people's, you know, severe health implications on the line. But one that's not so obvious to me. I mean, lawyers control this country. Right? They form a, a large number and often a majority of the legislature and of the governors. So I'm not sure that that's true. But second, um, even if that were to be true, still, you might think it's just a matter of degree, not in kind. Better philosophers make universities better. They make for better philosophy. Better lawyers make for better a better legal system and better judicial decisions. I mean, why not think that even if you thought that physicians were more important, um, which is a side note, is not obvious to me, why not think of the differences in degree, not in kind? It might be a, a matter of
0: degree rather than kind, but so it's a, it's, a substantial, it's a substantial degree,
1: yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a really good point. I mean, you know, if you have, have some groups that are, that are just consistently being at the bottom of their class and flunking the boards at a much higher rate, you think, look, the likelihood of them killing or harming people is is noticeably higher, and that itself should achieve a lot of weight. But I am worried about the following arguments. One thing is that when you look at the students for fair admissions case. What you discover is it's not clear that the equal protection clause should really should be interpreted in a colorblind manner. I think the sort of weight of precedent supports it, but there are things like, um, as, as Justice Sotomayor points out, the Freedmen's Bureau Act of eighteen sixty five, uh, Civil Rights Act passed in eighteen sixty six, and the the you know, money given for destitute uh, colored women and children in, in eighteen sixty six, which suggests that. The the intention of the people who passed the Protection Clause was not to have a colorblind constitutional provision. Um, and in addition, if if I remember correctly, which I, which I might not, if, if there were segregated schools in D.C. at the time that the 14th Amendment was passed, there's some reason to believe that they were interested in remedying um, racial injustice rather than having a colorblind constitution. And we we then return to the view should the intentions of the people who passed it matter, or should we look at what they actually passed? What it says equal protectional laws. I mean, why care what they intended? That's what they said. That is, we should look at sentence meaning and not at speaker meaning. And if we look at sentence meaning, then we have to decide what is it what quality requires of us? And what the people who ratified it thought that required of us is less important if it's important at all. That is. They might have just been mistaken in terms of what equality requires of us. I remember
0: uh, Thomas disagreed with Sotomayor on this, and he thought the Freedmen's Bureau and the Civil Rights Act of 1865, although they applied to uh, black people at the time, were based on condition and were consistent with a colorblind reading of the Constitution. So what do you think about that rejoinder?
1: So I actually find that pretty convincing, to be honest with you. I mean, that they're aimed at sort of slavery rather than, than race. I'm, I'm sympathetic to that. And I also think that, look, if you look at overall what they're trying to accomplish, um, I do think that they were trying to accomplish something like colorblindness. But I suspect they were kind of schizophrenic on that. I mean, one draft of the Equal Protection Clause, again from Sotomayor's argument, very much used colorblind language, and that was rejected. Right? President Johnson vetoed some of these acts precisely because he thought it, it treated some groups differently than others, and, and Congress overrode him. So I think that Thomas is right. That's probably what the ratifiers thought at the time. Overall, if we had polled them, Again, I'm a little bit worried about saying, why should we pay that much attention to what they thought? Second, uh, even if we should, did they have a clean view of this? I mean, you might think, well, they probably didn't have, they probably didn't, you know, at least some of them didn't face these issues very clearly. Other ones probably couldn't care less. I mean, other ones thought, look, this is, you know, I I have to ratify this for the country to move on. I, I just don't care which interpretation is correct.
0: What do you do with original intent when there's obvious cognitive dissonance in the minds of the people making the law? That's another another issue here.
1: I think that's a, a severe issue here. I, I think, overall, I think Thomas's arguments are better well, than Sotomayor, but I thought Sotomayor are some good arguments, particularly with some um, of the things I mentioned. The fact that Johnson, the President Johnson at the time, vetoed some of these bills, um, and that the 14th Amendment rejected phrasing which looks very much like it was explicitly colorblind yeah i mean you might think one explanation is that is they were looking for a broader account of equality rather than just to remove race discrimination so there are other interpretations of what was going on there but yeah i mean take the the americans for disability act there's an issue here as to whether or not a company should be required to make accommodations for the disabled when it results in the worker being a money loser for the corporation or for the firm Do we really have to go back to what the the people who voted for this thought? I mean, when they look at if it was relevant, what they thought, they should have put in the bill. It doesn't matter what they said on the floor of Congress. So
0: for Students for Fair Admissions, you have this this decision by Roberts, and it decides to prioritize the Equal Protection Clause argument over the Civil Rights Act argument, which I think we both agree is a mistake, because it just seems like... The Civil Rights Act, it's it's much clearer. The argument is just much clearer. The Equal Protection Clause argument, I think, like even original intent people agree that it's a little bit murky whether it works or not. Like it's well argued by Thomas, but there are good arguments in the other direction too. Whereas I think if they just made it based on the Civil Rights Act, the argument is it's easier to go through. Now, of course. Congress could repeal the Civil Rights Act, but you, we assume that they wouldn't do that, right? There's too much symbolic value. So I, I don't know why they didn't just make the Civil Rights Act. I think it was Gorsuch who, in his concurrence, emphasized this. And I thought, yeah, that just should be the main argument.
1: So I think that's a great point. I, I like Gorsuch's argument. I mean, he, one of the things he does is he just cites the dictionary. He says, look, we know what discrimination is. We know what because it is we know what discrimination therefore, you know, because of racism and, and clearly this satisfies this. It's very much a either an original understanding or a plain meaning argument. It's very much direct. It strikes me as fairly mysterious as to why we would think that the um, civil rights act, uh, particularly, you know, Title Six and Title Seven, would be uh, you know, have roughly the same content as the Equal Protection Clause. I mean, they were passed for different reasons by different Congresses at, at different times. I mean, one concern here is a concern about procedure, right? If the plaintiff, the students for fair admissions, either didn't emphasize the um, Civil Rights Act argument or didn't raise it all you might wonder, is that really a legitimate basis for deciding a case? That is, should the court freelance and make arguments that really were not Presented and vetted in the either the written or the or the oral part of the case, I, there I, I, I attempt to say these these cases are so momentous. The answer is yes, but it is a tough call. I mean, I think that, look, these things haven't been vetted. I mean, you know, litigants make strategic decisions, and those decisions strategic decisions should be respected. I kind of go back and forth, um, and I'm curious what you would think of this as to whether the court should have said, "Look, we're just not going to address the protection clause argument." It, contradicts the Civil Rights Act. And the protection clause argument is is, um, there for another day. There's one other thing which I find extremely troubling about the case. We're seeing the effects of this right away. At the end of the decision, Justice Roberts says that, well, look, the universities may consider racial experience, but they may not consider race. Now, I am highly skeptical there's a difference between race and racial experience. And even if there were, the first rule is going to get um, completely eviscerated by the second rule. I'm not quite sure why racial experience is relevant whatsoever. I mean, Roberts suggests that it's relevant only if it's an indicator of some other thing, you know, like courage or, or resilience or grit. But one, I, I doubt that's the case as well. But in addition, you're just inviting an exception that's going to swallow the rule. The First thing the universities would have been predicted to do, and in fact, already doing this is just to ask questions about racial experience and then backdooring in exactly what they had been doing before, this time in terms of racial experience rather than race. In which case, what was the purpose of the decision? We're going to have exactly the same results, albeit with just a slightly modified justification. I wish he hadn't said that.
0: There's this weird thing about Roberts, just his constitutional inability to not be a complete weasel. Agreed. As you can see in the Obamacare case. I'm forgetting I'm forgetting the name. It's Sibelius. Sibili- that was another case where Roberts did most of the arguing on behalf of the lawyers.
1: Yes. So I think that's a really good point. But, but I want to turn to the racial experience case in the following sense.
0: Hold, hold on a second. To get back to that, if you look at the, what the Supreme Court decision says, it's pretty clear that you, you can't just substitute racial experience for race and think that this is fine. You have to have some argument for why this bears on on some objective quality. It does open the door a bit, but I think people saying this this makes no difference. I think that is overblown.
1: So I'm not sure why you think it's overblown in the following sense. Now, he says you have to introduce racial experience in terms of some other value, some other virtue that a person has. But, but I mean, how much investigation can you do? I mean, you're getting like short essays. What are you getting, like 500 or 750 word mm-hmm. essays, short interviews with alumni. I mean, how is racial experience going to differ in any way from, from race? Granted, there is a difference and you might think, okay, look, perhaps this might distinguish between, um, for example, African-Americans who grew up in very disadvantaged settings in places like Detroit or Camden, as opposed to, you know, African-American immigrants or wealthy African-Americans, some sort of distinction like that. One um, this requires very fine-grained judgments on behalf of admissions committees that have tens of thousands of applicants for a few thousand spots. And number two, even if there is, even if this fine-grained distinction or something that admissions committee members could follow, what is the likelihood they're actually going to do so? I mean, why not think you're just going to have um, exactly the results you have before, but just put under different rationalization, especially now that people know not to write down um, the fact that just making simple racial judgments in addition, how do we even judge these things? I mean, take two two types of experiences. One is what it's like to grow up, um, as a, um, impoverished African-American in Detroit and what it's like to grow up, um, as a morbidly obese, um, white woman in Connecticut. Um, you might think, okay, well, look, which is a greater disadvantage or which shows greater grit or courage or integrity. I don't even know how we make these judgments, and I certainly don't know how we make these judgments in the absence of empirical studies, telling us what is the virtue we want, and to what degree do these experiences reflect it?
0: Well, stepping back for a moment, there is an issue that I think is completely independent of racial discrimination, which is the emphasis on suffering that students are encouraged to to put forward in like their application essays like if you want to show that you're worthy of going into an elite institution what you want to do is show how much you've suffered how hard you have it actually this was something that Vivek Ramaswamy brought up in his book Nation of Victims and you know think whatever you want about his presidential campaign it makes a really good point that I, I believe it's it's just his testimony, but he says he's got a friend who's on an admissions committee for some elite university, and he said he was talking to her one day, and she she looked at like ten applications, and she's like eight of them were all about suffering, and it's completely independent of race. It's all about this is how bad I have it. This is how bad I have it. We've cultivated this culture where to show that you're worthy to be admitted into the elite is to we've you, got to show boy, look how much I've suffered. And I think that's probably as useless and arbitrary as selecting people based on race. I mean, suffering isn't qualification.
1: I think that's an outstanding point. I mean, that's a really a point. It's unclear. Like, what is it that suffering is supposed to indicate? Um, You might think that it indicates grit or that it shows that someone's performance is going to be underpredicted by their, their academic scores. I just don't see any reason to think the latter is true. I'm I'm unaware of any study which shows that suffering tells us that people's uh, board scores or GPA is going to underpredict their future performance. And second, I'm not even sure that predicts grit. I mean, it might have the opposite view, right? It might be the case that the more you suffer, the more you're worn down, the less grit or resilience you have. In addition, you might think that there's important incentive considerations here, right? We might want to encourage people not to see themselves as victims. Or to take steps to make sure they are not victims or to have their families take steps. They're not victims, right? Why incentivize suffering as opposed to incentivizing the opposite of, you know, of suffering, you know, flourishing? So I'm not sure what personality features it predicts. I'm not sure what performance features it predicts. And I'm not sure why we want to incentivize suffering. So I think Ramaswamy makes an excellent point, And I, I think it's very mysterious as to why we should put so much effort on suffering. I mean, you might think, look, if we were selecting a best friend or a spouse, we wouldn't want to pick the person who suffers the most. Well, if that's true, why would we want to do so in terms of picking the students who attend our university? So I think you make an excellent point. I think Ramaswamy makes it at some point. Um, if anything, you might think we should go the opposite way, that if we must consider suffering, and I doubt we should, then maybe we should hold it against people. That is, maybe we should discount people's applications by how much they suffered, um, thinking that the effects are negative, or in any case, we're concerned about incentive effects in the opposite direction. Yeah, so to go back
0: to how much does this this little we can consider racial experience matter thing, I don't know that it matters that much because the universities are going to be stuck on this suffering thing, even if they were strictly colorblind about it. So for one, and... Yeah. Also, I just think that they would open themselves up to a- another lawsuit. I mean, he signals in the decision that he'd be willing to consider an- another lawsuit if they did just try to brazenly substitute racial experience for race, like like for every case or something. And the third thing that makes me think this is in California, where they really did try to cheat and they have cheated even because they, they passed this was a proposition, was it 206 or 209? Um, I think Prop 206 that eliminated race-based affirmative action in the state. The schools have done everything they can to cheat. And still, it had a noticeable effect on, on the admissions, right? So maybe the schools are going to try even harder with this one. Maybe the outcome is going to be different. But I just think that even with all the tricks for disguising it, nothing, nothing gets them the results they want uh, better than upfront discrimination, not disguised in any way. That's what's getting them what they really want and most efficiently.
1: So I, I, I just empirically disagree with you. I, I think, in fact, we'll get the same results, perhaps even worse. Again, if you look at what happened in California and Michigan, um, pretty, it's pretty clear they were cheating and they were cheating big time. So, I mean, I think the precedent shows that. Yeah, initially there was some diminishment, but eventually they they kicked in the um, the affirmative action machine, so that you know they just basically ignore it. Second, you got to remember that these universities are driven by ideology, and the time and cost it takes to challenge one of these things is enormous. So even if you think okay, they're going to lose in court again five years, ten years down the road, they might think okay, well at least we got away with doing this for five or ten years. The likelihood of any one university. Being the one that's sued or having to pay damages is small. Third, you might think worst case scenario they're told to cut it out again, right? It's not like they're going to get hit with any sort of cost other than their legal costs. Fourth, they're already doing this, right? If you look at what universities have done, they've already switched to asking about racial experience with ra- race, and so I, I just don't see it that this would be true in theory or in practice. Um, I think now that you have a safe harbor provision that these universities will pursue it with full force they've struggled like hell
0: against the elimination of affirmative action in california and they have complained about the limits that they that that they have on them because they can't do it openly i think not being able to do it openly it does constrain them not as much as we would like but it but they do feel constrained by it i think I, there was an article in the wall street journal that noticed that, yeah, it does make a difference to their admissions, even though you're right, they aren't cheating, but cheating isn't as, isn't as good
1: I, I mean, perhaps you're right, perhaps perhaps it's going to sort of slow it down a bit, but nowhere's near you know reduce it um significantly i mean here's an example where you can see the contrary. Look, the Supreme Court has said repeatedly from Bakke to Bruder to Gratz and everywhere in between that you may not use quotas. It's absolutely amazing how many large state universities are saying, telling departments, you can hire someone only if you hire a disadvantaged minority or a woman. I mean, flat out saying, look, we're going to use an exclusionary quota. I mean, there's, there's no controversy as to whether or not the courts have said this okay. And yet, we both know cases where they're doing this, and they're doing this openly. Various committees, various search committees, various other committees, the university will tell you, look, you have to have a certain number of disadvantaged minorities and women. That is, they're putting quotas on committees. If these universities feel confident enough to ignore the clear black letter law saying quotas are not okay uh, with regard to um, hiring or with regard to committee work or with regard to things other than students, right? It's not clear that the Supreme Court has said they can even use this sort of preferential treatment with regard to faculty or staff. And yet universities do this as well without clear authorization from the courts. So what I would say is, given that they're using quotas which are in blatant contradiction of precedent, and given that they're using it in areas other than students, which have not been clearly authorized by the courts, uh, I think that even if you're right, even if it does slow it down, still, we're we're talking a minimal diminishment rather than a large-scale diminishment. But again, it's just an empirical um, guess on my part.
0: Yeah. So I wonder what you think will be the consequences of it in, in this respect. Do you imagine, because a lot of them are getting rid of test scores, that too is a consequence of the decision because they they don't feel comfortable in relying just on the racial experience essays to nonetheless have this evidence of huge score disparities and who they're going to admit. So they they have to get rid of the test scores or keep them gone after the COVID emergency gave some reason for, for suspending them for admissions. They have to keep that going to cover their tracks. So I just think as a matter of competition, I don't know when this will happen, but it seems like this should happen eventually that there's some school that just says, well, we'll take test scores. We'll take test scores, and we're not going to discriminate on race. And I just wonder how long – I mean, you and I have complained about elite institutions that have debased themselves and yet still seem to have the same cultural cachet that they had completely undeservedly. But it seems like if they're eliminating test scores and there are other institutions that are following the, the spirits and the letter of the law on this, if you've got some institution like Caltech that says we're going to take the top scores regardless of race, eventually they're going to take the place of the elites, wouldn't you think? Or will they, they perversely continue on in this zombie elitism for you know indefinitely?
1: So I think you make an excellent point. I don't know why the markets are not working here. I mean, you might think, yeah, that more schools would do what Caltech does um, and say, look, we're just going to go with a straight numbers-based account. And since the markets will declare us the winner, we're going to gain from doing this. Um, You might think that one of the Ivies would break away from this ideology and saying, look, or or Chicago, Duke, would say, look, we're just going to go straight. We're going to choose the top academic people and the market will reward us. Um, And almost no one aside from, like I said, Caltech, uh, as you pointed Caltech, seems to want to do this. I don't know why the market's not working better here. I'll give you another example. 30% of Harvard's admittances are what are called ALDC. It's alumni, children of alumni, children of donors, um, athletes, and children of faculty. I mean, that's a huge number. Why isn't the market punishing schools which are not choosing more carefully on the basis of merit? I just don't know the answer to this. But you see in other failures in the market, right? Given the size of the endowment, schools like Harvard or Yale could easily tell all their students you're going for free. Their endowment would pick up those costs, no problem. and it would be a huge competitive advantage. And you think, well, Harvard and Yale are sitting at the top of the heap. Well, maybe the competitors are just a little bit lower that could afford it. You know, maybe like a, a Dartmouth or a Columbia or a Cornell could do this and say, look, we're just going to cut the, you know, it's going to cost one third as much to go here as it does to go to our competitors. Markets don't seem to work in these elite um, in these elite schools, I and mean, I cannot see why, other than that their ranking seems to be immune to market forces. I mean, you see this in, in philosophy department hirings as well. If a, if a philosophy department has a poor job of hiring, and so they're not ranked as well as they should be ranked, no one has a skin in the game. No one's punished for making poor drafting choices for philosophy hiring. That's a real problem, and this seems to be the same thing true with regard to admissions to these elite schools. So, yeah, I just I just do not see the the market operating here. I'm not sure why it's not. I mean, one reason is that you don't have an overall quantification. So, in something like sabermetrics in baseball, we can look at wins, or for per player, we can look at production. I mean, I don't know why we don't have a similar account of what is the you know the overall production per institution, or what is the production per graduate, or the income per graduate, or happiness level per graduate, or something which allows us apple to apple comparisons that makes an institution bear a price for doing a subpar job of admitting students or subpar job of hiring faculty. And I think we really need that. So I think your point's excellent.
0: Now, the other little uh, qualification that has worked both of us in the decision. There was, there was a footnote that says, well, we we've yet to consider whether this applies to military academies. So that's bad for two reasons. And the one reason is there's no pressure whatsoever on military academies to accept this decision and stop discriminating, which they are, they have really ramped up and, the other thing that's bad about it, and Sotomayor makes this point, and you have to give it to her that this is a good point, is that it just it weakens the overall case. Because if you can say, well, we haven't considered military academies yet, she makes the point, well, you haven't considered religious schools either. Maybe it doesn't generalize to them, or, you know, does this not generalize beyond any beyond UNC and Harvard? Or why would you go out of your way to Restrict the generalization of, of the decision. I just don't see why you would do that.
1: So I think your point's an, an excellent one. It's outstanding. Why did they exempt the academies in the footnote and not other groups? There's a whole sort of reasons to think that they shouldn't have done this. Number one, if you think it's really important that we have the most meritorious doctors because the importance of, of doctors' performance, why wouldn't this be true with regard to men and women leading others into combat? Right? You would think it's really important that you have people leading others to combat who are responsible for their lives, and making life and death decisions in terms of killing and letting die, that you have the best people available. Also with the military academies, they take a significant number of people from the high schools that feed into them rather than getting you know, the, the best individuals they can um, who already graduated from high school. Why would they do that? It's hard to see how you would justify that. Even the very opaque process by which they admit people in the academies uh, makes things worse. The costs per academies are unbelievable. You might think it really matters we have the best for the academies because it costs, let's say, nearly $500,000 per graduate. That's a lot of money to invest in a graduate. Doesn't that tell us we should invest in the best? And lastly, at least one of the academies shows preference for people who are Medal of Honor winners. So that is depending on who your father or mother was you get some sort of preference for admission. This is really mysterious, right? The Penn State wrestling team wants the best wrestlers. They don't care how effective your father was as a wrestler. Your mother was a wrestler. They want the best wrestlers they should get. Why should Penn State or the University of Iowa care about the best when the academy should not? So I think you make an excellent point. One, it's unclear how this is consistent with with, what they say elsewhere. Um, and number two, whatever reasons they have for setting aside for the military academies would seem to apply uh, writ large. And third, if anything, the, the importance of leading men into combat, the cost per graduate, and just the emotional significance of these, these universities uh, to America's military leadership, not emotional, the significance of it to America's, all of these might suggest the opposite is true, that like medical school, we should emphasize merit, to a greater degree rather than to a lesser degree than other institutions. You know, the one thing I disagree with and
0: what you said is the Medal of Honor point. I actually think if a kid's dad was the, a winner of a Medal of Honor, yeah, I would definitely want to take him as a military academy for a couple of reasons. One is the apple doesn't usually fall that far from the tree. There's something to that heuristic. But then also, I just think there's got to be some impression of growing up with your dad being a Medal of Honor winner, like you've got a lot to live up to and you're probably disciplined in a certain way, I would definitely give a, a strong preference for children of Medal of Honor winners.
1: So it's an obvious. Mean, so wh- why in this case would you break away from merit but, but not elsewhere? I mean, why not you know, take other cases of people who showed like real grit? I mean, imagine someone grew up homeless and was sort of always competitive enough to get into the Naval Academy or or, or. I'm curious as to whether you would do the same for the SEAL team or the Delta team. I mean, would you sort of give breaks for people trying to get qualified for those teams? Would you say you're you're allowed just a little bit lower standards because you're a Medal of Honor winner? I mean, would you would you use that for Penn State wrestling, right? If Penn State wrestling is the best in the nation, would you say, look, I mean, there's things we want to promote being a Medal of Honor winner, or we think there's certain excellences that accompany that and accompany those households. If you wouldn't do that for SEAL or Delta team membership, and you wouldn't do that for Penn State wrestling, why should the Naval Academy or West Point be handled any differently? Is there any counterpart to the Medal of Honor for,
0: for wrestling? I mean, what would it be? A, a, a gold yeah. medal? If, in yeah, the Yeah, if your model was a
1: gold, it was an Olympic gold medalist. Um, well, yeah. If model was a SEAL team member, then you get lower standards to become a SEAL team member. I think there is a particular... Thing about
0: legacy in military honor that might not translate to anything else. I know that sounds vague, but the idea of, you know, wanting to make good on your, your father's reputation, I think it, it, there's, a, there's just something about the military and uh, this that might not be true in these other fields.
1: Yeah, I guess my concern here is twofold. Number one, if there is something that honor we want to value, why not have statistically validated tests and test for it directly? I mean, why go at it indirectly? And you know, I think whenever possible, we should use statistically validated tests. Second, we'd need some sort of evidence that a sense of military honor is important to performance. I mean, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But 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 how do we know this? I mean, I don't think we know this by sitting on you know an armchair. Now, I, I know that you're a veteran and that you're well familiar with the with the army, but. I mean, I guess twofold. I mean, why think honor is even predictive of performance? And two, if it is predictive of performance, why not test for it directly? It's some sort of statistically validated test, right? Test for people's attitude regarding military honor. Well,
0: look, I, as a general matter, am all in favor of let's moneyball this as much as we can. Let's replace the personal and the subjective with cold hard figures to the greatest degree possible. But I still think we're going to end up relying on some heuristics. Well defined, limited scope, and I, I think that one is one I would feel more comfortable with than the others. Also, how many of these exceptions are there going to be? You know, there just aren't going to be that many.
1: It's a good point, and I didn't raise it because I think it has a large effect in admissions, unlike let's say the high schools which feed into the academies. But I'm talking about the theory of it, and the theory of it is just look, I mean, you might think that the burden on proof should be very strong for those people who want to move away from statistically validated predictors. And that is anyone who says, look, we should give weight, let alone significant weight to something that's not statistically validated should bear the burden of proof. Why? Because we care about performance. We particularly care about performance when there's a lot on the line, when it costs a lot, or when it's important. Um, And I think that uh, those sorts of things matter here. They all seem to matter here. I mean, if you replace a son of a Medal of Honor winner, you give him a spot at West Point when someone otherwise would have been a significantly better uh, leader in combat. You know, there might be, and, um, you know, in terms of expected value, there's a diminishment of the return to, to the soldiers serving on him. under him. I just think, what would justify that? I mean, I, I hear your view that you think anecdotally being raised in a medal of honor when their family is going to predict performance, but with all due respect, and again, I know you're a veteran and incredibly bright guy on top of it. I I just don't think you know that. I think, um, and I I don't think we know
0: that. No, I mean, I, I I admit it's a, it's, it's a best guess. It's a best guess. And if the norm was that everything was, was done statistically in a, in a airtight fashion, would I want to introduce this one first deviation from that no that would occasion all sorts of slippery slopes but but since since you know those sorts of things are ubiquitous that's one that seems more sensible than than many of the others fair enough good point i think that is all i've got to say about this at the moment i'm modestly optimistic like if the supreme court changes it, of course and then they they overturn this decision then it's all moot anyway but i think this is another good thing about the decision, even if the decision has these sort of loopholes and everything. The fact that affirmative action now has to be defended, and we all know it's happening. And there, what what can we do about it? You know, making politicians have to defend this consistently unpopular policy, I think that's another good aspect of this decision.
1: So I think you make a natural point. I think I think there's a um there's kind of an underlying theoretical issue that I find really interesting, which is what is the philosophy of admissions? So one of the things that seems to show up in different opinions is that it's okay for universities to favor, for people who are less academically able, the elite universities, but who are really good at violin or really good at playing, you know, middle linebacker. And one thing I wondered about this is why should we care about whether or not um, someone play is a really good middle linebacker or at least good for the Ivy league, for example, or whether someone's really good at violin. Um, I mean, you might think that, look, excellence is excellence. Why should we confine our excellence to acad- academic excellence? On the other hand, you might think, how is this relevant? I mean, if you want to play linebacker, you want to play the violin, you know, that's on you. Do that in your, your free time. It's not clear why the university should be that interested in it. And if it should be an interest, it's unclear why they should admit you on that basis. Some other things seem to be sort of Pareto improvements, right? If you admit that the child of a very wealthy donor then you might be able to fund a lot of other excellent students and, and you know, have them show for free. So there could be a case where at the expense of one person who more than pays for himself, you get other people as well. Other cases like why favor the children of faculty, right? There seems to be a lot of favoritism of the children of faculty, at, le- at least at, at Harvard, but I just strongly suspect elsewhere as well. I mean, how is that any more than, than people favoring their own or, or misusing resources? just like you couldn't steal resources for your own use. I think there's a more general concern about what should be our philosophy of admission. That is, what is it that universities should be aiming toward? One might think there's no answer. It's whatever the owners of the university decide. As a side note, there's a real issue actually who owns like Ivy league schools, but you might think there's no answer, it's just whatever the owners want. I guess
0: we have to decide, you know, who do we want in the elite circles. Right. But I, Yeah, I don't know. I don't have any real strong opinions about this, about universities. Generally, if you only go based on IQ and you don't have any musicians or athletes or whatever, I think you'd probably get a better school. Uh, It might be one that a lot of students would find a drag to go to, and it wouldn't be as exciting or vibrant as an environment. Maybe some faculty wouldn't want to teach there or whatever, but enough would. I just want there to be a few places that are as committed to like intellectual excellence as possible, undiluted by other goals. If there are other universities that are like, Hey, you know, we're not going to be in a lead school and we want there to be an orchestra and we want to have a decent football team and we want awesome. to have this kind of stuff. I think that's fine, I guess, but I want there to be places that are, are genuinely committed to excellence. And it does bother me that even supposedly elite places are willing to dilute that commitment uh, to such an extreme degree as we've seen.
1: So I think you make an excellent point. So Steven Pinker pointed out, this a few years ago, that only 5% of, of Harvard students are admitted purely on the basis of academic merit. I, I mean, in terms of your taste and my taste, I think it'd be more exciting to be at a university with nothing more than the, you know, the, the highest IQ people around. I mean, when you and I go to conferences, a lot of our friends who are philosophers, you know, we hang out with incredibly talented philosophers. And we have all sorts of interesting ideas and discussions because they're so talented. So it might be that's more vibrant and exciting, but the more general point is why do we have markets in this area? I mean, why don't we have, let's say, you know, Penn saying we admit people purely on the basis of academic merit and Duke saying, no, we, we also admit people based on, you know, whether or not you can play the oboe and whether or not you're excellent at squash and then saying, okay, well, we can let people choose then. I mean, do they want you know, people choosing purely based on academic merit. Well, then you choose Penn or, you know, maybe Chicago. Or do you want people choosing on, you know, when they can do other things as well. Play middle linebacker or they're really good at the the harp. Okay, then you can go out just to make up names of just, you know, pulling schools at, at random here. You know, Duke and Stanford. But then we can choose. What's odd is that the, these these universities are not specializing in any way. That is, they don't seem to be competing either in terms of price in terms of the type of students they, they let in, or even in terms of their message. One last thing, and that is, as you and I are well aware, they talk about diversity, but it's never diversity of ideas. It's almost always diversity of race, ethnicity, or um, of sexual taste, or things like that. But I mean, the universities really could select for diversity of ideas. They could let in, for example, uh, they could let in Hasidic Jews. Right, they could let in uh, white supremacists. Uh, they could let in people with felony records. They could let in people who are practicing polygamists. I mean, there's all sorts of people they could let in to introduce new ideas, or they could just let in people who are who are on the far right side of the spectrum. They don't seem to consider diversity of ideas. Well, it's odd because one of the things that that Powell argued in Bakke was the reason to have diversity was to have diversity of ideas. You might think the opposite is true, that in terms of shutting down people who notice or comment on the different ability of different groups, in fact, we get less diverse ideas. We get less diverse ideas because the affirmative action hiring tends to fave, strongly favor people on the left, number one, and number two, because the emphasis on diversity has also been accompanied by and caused um, a restriction in freedom of speech on campuses. So you might think that there's a real hostility towards diversity of ideas that's achieved by demographic diversity.
0: Uh, Racial diversity was put forward for a um, supposedly instrumental reasons. But as a matter of fact, it has sort of become an end to itself. I don't think there's any empirical study demonstrating the lack of connection of like racial or gender diversity or diversity of sexuality or whatever the lack of connection of this to some objective merit that would give any one of these universities any any minute of pause, you know, they would just keep on trucking with what they're doing.
1: Which is one of the reasons I thought that Justice Jackson's opinion was so interesting. Uh, you might think, look, what's really going on here is people want to compensate for past injustices, or they want to achieve equality of opportunity, and the way to do that is to screen out the effects of past injustices, and that would explain. Why they're less interested in what the actual effects of uh, these diverse admissions are, right? Rather, if they have backward looking considerations, but they can't be open about it because somehow we're still bound by Justice Powell's opinion. Um, and that would explain why we're uninterested in these things. Um, and also, even if there are new ideas introduced through demographic diversity, which I, I'm skeptical of, you might think that these good effects are swamped by lack of merit. When you produce less talented doctors, or doctors who are going to work fewer hours, there's a price to be paid. And that price can be and should be weighed against the value of new ideas. The fact is that if you're using a forward-looking justification of affirmative action, we have to count both the costs and benefits. And you can't sort of just rule out the costs and say, we're not going to consider them. I mean, if you're admitting people who are just there's good reason to believe they're not learning as much in medical school. They're not performing as well in their, in their rotations, and they're not performing as well in the residencies. There's going to be a price to be paid for that. And even if there were idea gains and diversity of ideas, we have to weigh them against one another. All right, Steve. I think that's a good conversation. I'm
0: ready to wrap it up. Thanks so much for spending your Sunday morning with me on this podcast.
1: Uh, Spencer, it, it's an honor and a pleasure. I, I always enjoy our conversations, and I learn a lot from them. So thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it, and um, yeah, I, I just, I just really enjoy every time we get a chance to talk. Thank you.